Hey, Sean. Hey. Love that painting. That's a little better. Oh, my wife picked that up in Vietnam. Wow. A uh, street. Huh? Uh, I think it was a street or a gallery. But uh, yeah, that's uh, those are school school uh, girls. They're it's, all in uh... white. It was before I met okay. Sarah. Okay. So she was traveling with a friend. So that would have been at least, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. I think it was a... Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. I We really like it. It's nice to have some real art, not just like, you know, Prince of Cezanne, which I have one of those too. Oh, nice, nice. It was, it was a really good seeing you guys last night. The stroke, one of the latencies is, is I get a little overwhelmed by a cacophony of noise. And I'm still, I'm working through that. Um, okay. But it, I, I, I kind mm-hmm. of tend to, to zone out or have to concentrate on one person to the sort of to the okay. detriment of, of other people but um that was great seeing you man was that hap- uh, was that happening last night a little bit a little bit okay you, yeah. i couldn't tell just so you know you're, you're yeah, fine yeah yeah like i said like i said i'm i'm working through it and muscling through it and realizing it's it's my issue and not everybody else's right yeah I, if it helps you any i'm going a little deaf so when i'm like <laughs> in a crowd like that it's all white noise and i uh-huh. Uh, I, can't, <laughs> I, I think can't I think I suspect a lot of us are are sort of in that mm-hmm. that situation. Uh, I have got I've got a great a great introduction for you, and then uh, we're going to get into uh, a, a really good discussion in just a bit. We'll in this episode of Playtime, my conversation with associate professor of creative writing at Columbia College in Chicago and critically acclaimed novelist Sean Shiflett. I'm your host. W.C. Turk. John Shiflett is an associate professor in the English and Creative Writing Department at Columbia College in Chicago and a storyteller. Sean received an MA in English with an emphasis in creative writing from Central State University in Oklahoma and a BA from Columbia College. He is the author of two critically acclaimed novels, his 2013 debut, Hidden Place, uh, which we're going to talk about, by the way, uh, and uh, the 2016 follow-up, Hey Liberal. He is currently working on a multicultural project, Oral Histories on Race in America, with the first three parts of the series currently running in New City Magazine here in Chicago, titled You Will Always Be Different. He is a Master Story Workshop teacher uh, and has conducted in-service teacher training in that methodology for decades. He taught creative writing in Prague in the Czech Republic, I guess as opposed to Prague in East Texas and uh, was a guest teacher and author at Bath Spa University in UK. His website is seanshiflett.com. And according to uh, to your website, 
you live with your wife, the equally brilliant Mrs. Shiflet, who we were just talking about the the stunning painting that she picked up in uh, in Vietnam a number of years ago behind you, um, <laughs> which nobody could see here, but uh, but you know it, it, the flavor. Uh, and a couple of step cats and two English setters named Higgins and Brick. What I want to know, Sean, we all know the wife is an inspiration, uh, but how it do is. those animals inform your writing and creativity? <laughs> well, they're pretty high strung. I don't know if they inform my creativity, but they uh, they they keep me on my toes. Uh, the <laughs> two cats are like 16 years old. They're ragdoll cats. and they're Wow. Full of personality, and the, uh, the English setters are just pretty hyper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I, I, they actually bring out. I have to take care of something, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I have to. I have to make sure this, 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 these living creatures are okay. And mm -hmm. sometimes that gets a little bit intense with trying to juggle everything, work, family. Um, um, mm -hmm. But I, I also the love they give you is something that's pretty enriching when things are going bad, it's unconditional and they just, you yeah. know, they just melt in you. And, and, you know, so I, I get a lot from that. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. That wasn't a trick question, by the way. I just, just was, okay. was very curious. I said, I well, no. <laughs> and sort of the reason I asked that is, uh, so David Liebert, uh, was, was on my, uh, was on my podcast, my playtime podcast. And, and I, I played a bit of it, on last month's, uh, which would have been January, the uh, the CWA Let's Just Write podcast. He's a very big animal guy. He was he was the road manager for Alice Cooper and Rare Earth and Parliament Funkadelic. But he my, my people musically. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> and so he wrote a memoir that is portraying that really decadent life. Uh, as 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 rock and roll road manager, as decadent as you would expect, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Mm -hmm. And then he sort of redeems himself with with this ending about pets and how he's he's a champion for rescue animals and hmm. cats and dogs and, and all, all all that. So it, I've got I've got three rescue cats maybe a fourth which just wandered over to the house just the other night and uh and a, and a rescue dog they're very centering forces uh as as a writer i can get lost in what i'm doing a project that i'm working on but they force me away and i mm. think those those moments at least for me are are kind of exhilarating and empowering and and lightning. I as as I'm walking the dog uh, or feeding the cats, I tend to have thoughts or think through concepts or ideas that are still unformed when I'm sitting and looking at at, at a page full of words on a screen. How does that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> I I cannot claim quite that high altruistic relationship. I like with my pets. I. I love them to death, and they're they're sweet. But I, I call them my one percenter pets. They're like hoity-toity. I mean, they're they're, <laughs> they're oh my god, spoiled and beautiful, and they know it. Like they know <laughs> that they're like the two most beautiful cats in the world. Ragdolls are, are gorgeous, and English setters are. I mean, people stop yeah. in their cars and go, "Nice dogs!" And wow. it would be unusual 
to walk our dogs uh, without some stranger saying something. So, <laughs> you know, I got to be careful because it gets into your own ego stroke. You're talking about your dogs, not you. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but they're, um, they're, they're pedigrees. And, uh, you know, I, I think if we do this, the, the, the pet thing again, next time we're going to go the, your way, we're going to go rescue because there's just so many animals out there that, yeah. that need help. Yeah, yeah, there are. The Book of the Year awards last night, they just get better and better, um, which was already mm-hmm. a really high bar. And and every year, uh, the Chicago Writers Association, which you're a member of, keeps raising that bar, man. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we're raising the bar. It's the, uh, it's the community, the writing community that's raising yeah. the bar and yeah. the books they submit and uh, you know, uh, Latoya uh, won last night. Uh, uh, goes by Toya. Toya, uh, yeah. for, former uh, uh, student uh, at Columbia College, and you know, I was uh-huh. fortunate fortunate enough to see her in her progress. And I'd run into her when she was a student, going, "Oh, I have an agent, but they want me to do this or change the first person, <laughs> go to third person," and just you know how many trials she went through, and mm-hmm. then boom, suddenly. Uh, put it together and has this book out and she's teaching at Bennington now and getting uh, national uh, recognition. So, yeah. I mean, those, those kinds of stories. Yeah, you know, yeah. Those kind of stories. Chicago's always been rich, uh, uh, whether it's Nelson Algren or, uh, yep. um, uh, uh, you know, a lot, just a lot of, a lot of things that we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're a cultural center and we have our own sound oftentimes and yeah. it's important to the, yeah. to the scene. Uh, so Toya Wolf wrote last summer on State Street. Have you read the book? I haven't read the whole thing. I've read the first chapter, but I'm, I, I, I actually admitted that to her last year. Oh, Sean. <laughs> so, so yeah, I will get to it. It's on my, it's on, on the top of my stack. Beautiful image in that where there, uh, it's some, something, uh, we give sometimes in, uh, classes. I don't know where she got it of the, the kids who are playing jump rope, double Dutch jump rope. And from above, they look like fish in their, in their brightly uniform, uh, their bright clothes as they move around. And it's, it's just that, you know, there's nothing worse than a bad metaphor and there's nothing better than one that's just right. Yeah. Latoya really hit the mark on that. And she, she nailed it. Um, And so we're, we're going to have a conversation with her, uh, in February for the for the March CWA podcast, but the, I, I'm a little bit better than halfway through the book. For for people who who want to who want to know, uh, I read every book by every author who comes on this podcast. Wow! So for for this this latest batch, I was a little heartbroken that I I had between the announcement and booking them to to the program was was about a week and a half so i was and i'm working on uh on my own book as well so i was at a at a fever pitch of trying to consume these books which is a little mark hudson's book reads very very quickly because it's it's a history book and 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 there's not there's not a lot of subtext and 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 uh interweaving plots and and all that you you mm-hmm. don't need to come to a character you kind of can find them in in that situation and and, mm-hmm. and in a known situation but but for the authors like Christina Morocco her book is filled with nuance and subtext and and 
I, I kept trying to consume that book as detailed as possible, as quickly as possible. But I think something gets lost in in not spending uh, a leisurely amount of time devouring a novel. It's sort of like eating fast food. Mm -hmm. The difference between eating fast food or or dining out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a difference in quality of what you get, what you get out of that. Yeah. So I, th I think it was um, Toni Morrison who said something to the effect that literature is not fast food, like slow down. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Precisely, yeah. precisely. Yeah. I love that. So we're, we're going to talk about your uh, your project a bit uh, and also the democratization of the written word, especially with the opening up of. Uh, of Amazon and the self-publishing industry, which has mm -hmm. transformed the marketplace uh, literally in the last 20 or 25 years. It's been that short of a time period. It's been a revolutionary mm -hmm. time period. A lot of things are changing. My relationships with the students, you know, who've just come through the pandemic. I, there's a lot of times where they say things like, I just can't come to class. I, I have mental yeah. issues, mental health issues and things like that. So I've let go of a lot of the policeman type things of teaching and saying, you're an adult, you're here. What do you want to get out of this? Mm -hmm. And if you don't really want to get out of that out of this, if you don't really want to have some measurable, meaningful uh, progress in what you're doing, then that's your business really. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not uh, because I got plenty of people here who do want yeah. to do that. And so I begin to concentrate on the positive that's happening in the classroom and not my sense of someone's trying to, you know, pull a fast one. I will call them on it. You know, I just uh, if I if I if I know it, uh, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's it's really a, a tough thing to learn as mm -hmm. a teacher mm -hmm. to concentrate on the positive that's happening and let the rest by concentrating on that, you're not ignoring uh, some of the weaker students or what they're doing. You're saying either come up to this level or forget it. You know, if this yeah. is the level, yeah. you decide, you join it, or you don't. And usually they want to join it. You know, some some uh, some part of them wants 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 to be a better writer. They want to do well. They they're paying a lot of money for this this stuff. You know, so it, it sort of begs the question of. What is a writer? Is the writer the idea that they have and their ability to execute on that idea, or is it simply the idea? I was speaking with an author last night who wrote a wonderful book about the the seventy two socks, mm -hmm. um, and he's got he's got a template formula for writing a a franchise of of similar books where he can just plug that he can he can plug in the content and it's it, it, it's it's very formulaic boom 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 we all we all grew up learning the story arc so i i'm i'm just wondering if if this isn't if if there isn't an aspect of this that's a little bit generational in accepting the story arc pyramid on on a piece of paper but eschewing a computer-generated template. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Probably for the type of book he's looking at, that's that's an oak. He's getting a template for plot and template for arc. But it's you know, you say we all grew up learning it. I I have to say, learning it and recognizing it and actually being able to do it 
yeah. are, you know, for me, were two different things. I, yeah. I, yeah. I really, when I'm, you could take both of my novels are fairly plotted. So I'm mm-hmm. told, mm-hmm. I'm told they're plotted, but I had very little idea of what was going to happen, say two or three chapters ahead of where I was in the writing. Mm-hmm. So plotted was a much more organic thing that was character driven by what the characters were doing and what mm-hmm. they were telling me would mm-hmm. happen next. And as I got further and further into the process, I get six chapters ahead. I know <laughs> 10 chapters. Oh, I can see the ending, yeah. uh, but the, end, yeah. but then you're just into the first draft. Yeah. So yeah. Um, things change even more. I, I know the type of book I, you're talking about. I thought that was a really interesting book because I remember the time period of the White Sox that uh, that author was talking about. I wouldn't mm-hmm. consider what he's doing cheating because no, he still no, has, absolutely not. Yeah, you know, still has to write the prose. He still yeah. has to make it riveting. He still has right. to make me see things in my mind. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he's just kind of uh, uh, borrowing tried and true structures mm-hmm. that, and I know famous authors you know where i said oh you got that by imitating tom jones <laughs> or you got that by imitating all the king's men by robert penn warren when he's coming into town in the car yeah it's all you do this and you do that and you see this and you come so close to this this horse and buggy that you wipe this snot right off the, the horse's <laughs> nose and and you're, you're in your big limo and i've seen people you know imitate that that's that's just smart you know, if it works, if it's that's something that works for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you're I still. To... I, I'm a big fan of of crafting crafting a story, crafting a page, crafting a paragraph by the rhythm of of the word, mm-hmm. and and sort of sort of building that flow through a narrative. And yeah. you still are required to do that. Technology takes up uh, control. Uh, so so preventative measures will take will take on too. Fan fiction came out, and that's had a great yeah. effect. And they're just imitating and stealing things from other other people. And sometimes, you know, fan fiction, we all went, oh, God, fan fiction. It's just like there's no creativity there at all. But yep. actually, that's a great fan point. fiction is a, good, is a good way to learn plot, structure, you know, how, how the story moves. It's not yeah. a good way to come up with uh, your own story. People like Faulkner, they, they imitated writers left and right. They just kept it quiet. <laughs> You know, that was considered good lesson to learn. So if I, so, so some fan fiction, I look, I said, yeah, I've seen Star Wars. You know, I know what's going to happen in this scene, yeah. but they're actually writing their own imagery by imitating what happened next and things. And yeah. I said, that's not what we're doing in here. I can see the, I can see some value to that, but you're going to, it's just as an exercise, you know, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not anything that's going to get you where you need to go. Some, some brilliant insights and a, a great place to, so we'll, we'll... Can I say one other thing, Bill? Please, when, yeah. When computers first came out, I, and yeah. I've just seen this upheaval, this, yeah. what are we going to do? When computers came out, people were saying, oh man, people are going to be writing novels over the weekend because <laughs> they don't have to retype all the time. Uh-huh. But you still have to put the time and effort into what you're doing. And AI isn't going to be able to... Yeah you know, get to that kind of fine art yet. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, maybe, maybe one day it will, but this first, this first attempt at it, I doubt it. And, and even, even with all of the, um, the, the help programs, uh, the grammar, the grammar help programs, uh, spell check and, and what have you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Is that cheating? Yeah. That was like, oh, but I, you, you should learn how to spell. Yeah. But I, I, I still find there are a lot, first of all, there's a lot of things that it doesn't catch. 
um, and a lot of things that it misinterprets. So that's true. Um, the grammar is oftentimes wrong, or you, it, it goes against the voice of what you wanted that character to sound like. Or yeah, it's not. It's not precisely it's not what it. The, the cadence and the creativity sometimes don't don't gel with the mm-hmm. uh, the mechanics of the uh, of the uh, of a of a correction program. Uh, I, I'll take program. it even a step further. Yeah. I remember professors of mine saying, "Never go to an electric typewriter because the manual is makes you go slower, and in being <laughs> yeah. slower, you make decisions that would have been gone too fast to have made, and it changes uh-huh. the whole story." So they were like, "It's like." <laughs> Yeah, I would, I man, I was just glad there and, was an electric typewriter. I was glad there was a computer. I'm, I'm you know, and and I was, I would, I would agree with that person until somebody came along and invented whiteout. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there, there's, there's always somebody with a fly in the, you know, the, the, the purity ointment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Bill. Purity. <laughs> but that doesn't excuse having, you know, putting in all the different, you know, things and just having AI you know, write a story. I but, understand. Yeah, but but even with all of all of those 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 benefits to to writing, uh, and and I just finished a full edit of of a recent novel that I that I wrote, I still found a lot of typos, and then mm-hmm. I did this because I'm because I'm recording it for an audiobook as well. I read I I read the entire piece and still found. Uh, typos and yeah. and mistakes and uh, mm-hmm. so the, the the computer hasn't hasn't helped us really no. that much it it, it it aids us but it doesn't it doesn't save us well uh, just if it makes you feel any better I, I find them in my published books I go yeah. <laughs> I missed yeah. that. Uh, a humanizing so, factor, I would say, and I, yeah. I had that. I had that uh, that conversation with uh, Christine Morocco, uh, one of the authors from uh, from the the Book of the Year Awards last night, who is also a creative writing uh, instructor. She's found typos in her work. Sure. Uh, it's and 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 I'd say it's you know unless it's on every page, it it's kind of a humanizing quality, right? Sure. Sure. So, so we have copy editors, and even the copy editors miss things. And it's uh, you're yeah. just pure. Yeah. You're, if you're lucky enough to have more than one edition of your book, they just keep taking them out, taking them out, taking them out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I think I think that's a, that's a great segue to to this to your project here. Uh, I wanted to talk about you about uh, talk to you about your latest project. I thought we could talk about the democratization of the memoir and oral histories, but let's set the stage. You will always be different. Your series in New City, three okay. stories. That's uh, only form- one is titled that, Bill. The first, the okay. first history is titled that. The other second history is uh, that happy, that happy me from Gary, and the last one is what cuts at my soul, the story uh, of Mama Lizzie. So okay. That, but what uh, um, you will always be different was something that uh, the narrator Ted Ishwari. Uh, uh-huh. He's also a childhood friend of mine. Yeah. His father sat him down. He had to talk with him. Right, uh, right. He's a Japanese American father and said, you know, you can get along with people, and then, but you will always be different. And what Ted did at the table, he was, I was sitting here and he was uh, around the corner. He took his finger and went, you will always be different. And he started to tap my, my wow. table. And I said, oh, okay, that's the talk. Yeah, and I'm very serious about it. So I said, "Oh, that 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 sounds like the title of the uh, of the piece." 
Boy, and and I think I think that could work across the board with with any minority uh, and any mm-hmm. any any person of of color or eth- uh, a, a, a non majority ethnicity or or a, an outlier ethnicity mm-hmm. um, struggling struggling for for uh, an adequate or, or respectful term. But well, with, with Tina Jenkins Bell, she's talking about her sons uh, and raising an African American a black family in. Yeah. Beverly, Beverly, yeah, and she said, you know, uh, her mother was such a, a strong character, and how she would, if there was something happening with her kids, she'd be down at the police station or down at the uh, the, the school district, yeah. and 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 uh, uh, Tina said, you know, I, I I I she grew up in Gary, and people don't remember that, and I didn't know it. Gary used to be a very a mecca of the black middle class, indeed, or job. Yeah. There were jobs here, and uh, you know, and and so she talked about how how happy she was. And Gary, she said, "I, I wanted." I, she gave me all these, you know, racism things that she had to deal with her kids and getting hassled by cops and things like that. She said, "You know, I really don't want to be angry all the time. I want to just, you know, be that happy me from from yeah. Gary. But when I have to do my job as a parent, yeah. I do my job." That I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. So I said, "Oh, that." So I said, "Oh, that happy me." So a lot of times the title comes from uh, um, the editors at New City. They they uh-huh. say, "Well, we they pull it out." It's different than fiction. Uh, they they kind of retain the right uh, to uh, titles. I, I came up with uh, what cuts up my soul. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. James says, "I don't want to ruin the essay," but basically, you know, he gets into a. a, a, a an Emmett Till situation as a kid when he's visiting family in, South, down right. in Georgia and, uh, and his mother, his grandmother, who is stone deaf, mm-hmm. realizes that something is wrong inside this convenience store, rushes in just mm-hmm. on instinct. And she has to, uh, a white man who owns this, the convenience store has pulled a gun on yeah. James he's yeah. about nine years old because he didn't say sir or yeah. sir. Right. And, and so, he said, I had to watch my grandmother talk down the situation. You do what you have to do to save your family. You yeah. humble yourself. And he said, finally, he said, that's what cuts at my soul. Mm-hmm. Seeing her seeing her make, uh, you know, I just have to suck up to this racist. Um, so I said, ah, <laughs> that's the title. That's the title. And he also said that what made that situation worse, this is what cut at my soul. You have to yeah. listen to this. Yeah, is that the man with the gun, who was a full-grown man running this convenience store, mm-hmm. used to be babysat by Mama Lizzie, wow. so she knew him as a kid and treated. And he had at one point looked up to her as an adult, uh, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. even a mother figure as, mm-hmm. a, as a small child. So the complications of America's racism, right there, and the layer, layers of it, yeah. just were completely mind-boggling. I think I think in in this series, what I found was was a, a a broader spectrum definition of American racism. There are many different faces to racism. I, I used to know uh, Big Bill Clark was his name. Uh, he was uh, was one of the first Marines in Vietnam. Oh yeah, um, I think I've heard about him. Yeah. Okay. Great. And uh, and uh, he was one of Emma Till's. Uh, pallbearers and was uh, was uh, friends with his mother until she passed away a few years ago. They live on the same block. 
as a matter of fact. He had faced racism in my own hometown in Lamont, in a bar mm-hmm. that my dad used to drink at uh, as, as a fireman with firemen and, and cop buddies in, in town. Um, and and he came there with the handcuffed or a manacled uh, oh yeah I've heard, I've heard this story yeah and, okay with a manacled yeah. deserter and yeah. he was told he couldn't drink and he he was in full dress blues he was the one taking the prisoner who was he white. was the one taking the yeah. prisoner right uh, and 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 he told me another story that that and this was in the south where the prisoner was allowed to eat in the restaurant. And he was not right. So, so you have you have those overt events of of racism, but then you have the more the more subtle um, or the quieter styles of, of racism. The people who just mm-hmm. won't give a person a pass or a break in in a line because of their color, or mm-hmm. uh, the, they'll be passed over for. Uh, for promotion, or Ted Ishiwari was talking about his parents going through an internment camp during sec- the Second World War. So that's an aspect of of American racism. And what what emerges is, and, and I was just I was just writing a um, uh, a foreword for for a, a local artist here, ninety year old uh, artist Leo Segedin, uh who did a series and is is putting up a show on his Holocaust paintings. So I was talking about America's terrible record of of dealing with its minority populations. Mm-hmm. And so for each of these stories, I found very different perspectives on race. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all fits into into that that wider or that that bigger narrative. My mm-hmm. explain okay. that yeah, no, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, uh, but I, but I thought, uh, I just thought that uh, you will always be different. Just have this encyclopedic nuance and and meaning to it. There's so mm-hmm. much built into that that tells a much larger story, which you which you break down into detail in in this story. What oh. so. Why write this story? And 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 you know we'll we'll, right. we'll, br- we'll bring your your novels into this because I think your novels are are very much are very much akin to to this series. Why this series, and why now? All of both of my books. One takes place uh, split between Mexico and Lakeview in Chicago, the Lakeview neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The second one it takes place in Waller High School, which was the uh, high school pre uh, before it was called Lincoln Park High. Yep. Um, my parents were very involved in the civil rights movement, nonviolent civil rights movement. My dad was thrown in jail in Albany, Georgia. Uh, he was with the first. Um, uh, uh, for the first time, Martin Luther King called Northern clergymen to come down, and he would say, "Bear witness uh-huh. to Jim Crow." So he went down to Albany. No one talks about Albany; they just talk about Selma. But Albany happened first, and uh, you know, got thrown in jail for just having a prayer service on the stuff that's just benign now, mm-hmm. right? Having a prayer service on the courtyard steps, and uh, you know, about a, I don't know, seven or uh, five or six day hunger strike, and then King became. A national leader at that point. He was mm-hmm. no longer just a regional leader. So race, even though I was in this com- fairly working class Northwest side, pretty racist uh, area, 
Mm-hmm. My family was very much, uh, or I was very much exposed to what was happening in terms of uh, racism on the national scene. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then we moved into Lincoln Park, uh, and he became involved in theater, the body politic. But he still was, you know, involved with th- uh, groups like the Young Lords, who were the Puerto Rican version of the Black Panthers. It's mm-hmm. not, a little more complicated than that, but. Uh, and uh, a lot of different community groups and trying to fight urban renewal that was pushing poor people out of Lincoln Park. We see how successful that was, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just uprooting uh, communities. So then I was sent to high school. So I got into Lane Tech, which is where all the white uh, men, uh, boys went. Uh, they didn't have girls at Lane at that time to avoid being in this predominantly black and, and Latino uh, uh, Latinx high school. Okay. And my parents put their foot down and said, at the last second, even as Ted Ishiwari and all my friends were going to <laughs> Tulane, to uh, we want you to go to Waller. We want you to stay in the community. So I was uh, uh, really a fish out of water. I'd mostly grown up with white kids in the mm-hmm, northwest mm-hmm. side. I'd just been in Lincoln Park for a few years. The black kids were coming from Cabrini Green, which was at the south end of Lincoln Park area. Mm-hmm. I was from the north end. Um, and there I was, you know, in this situation. So mostly uh, I wrote the novel. It took me decades to get it to where I was comfortable with it. Okay. Um, um, I don't know if I'm even comfortable with it now, but I tried to, to relate the experience. It's an angry time. Also, there's a lot of funny scenes in it, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then no one much bought the book. You know, it was like, oh, it's this white guy. I'm assuming what you get is a lot of silence. But the assumption was that if he's going to talk about how rough that was, uh, because the black kids weren't exactly thrilled with us. okay, Um, that he must be a racist or that's that's the sub. That's the that's my interpretation of the silence. The book actually got very good reviews. But as far as it's a very good book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But beyond, uh, you know, uh, Rick Cogan and uh, uh, Mary Mitchell, the Sun Times, mm-hmm. I couldn't get uh, too much press. So I said, well, I could get really angry about this. I could be, <laughs> I could turn into a Trumpist. You know, I could, I could do all And I said, I, I don't want to do that. So let me, let me go find other people's yeah, stories yeah. that people want to listen to. And I, and it's also sort of so that I can better understand what happened to me. Yeah, to what yeah. the, the, the the greater context so ted he went to lane he's a good example and had all kinds of racism thrown at him i mean it was during vietnam and yeah. you know uh anyone who was asian was a quote gook you know right. it didn't matter where you came from uh, right. thailand uh malaysia uh you know korea yeah. you were all uh, so he went through terrible racism there James, you know, going back down south to the Jim Crow South, terrible racism. So you get a better idea of, A, how s- your, your story, Sean, was important. Got to be careful that I just talked about myself in the, in the, in the third person. I can't do that. Um, but there's a bigger story that makes your story just a spoke in the wheel. Yeah. So hopefully some people will come back to it and, yeah. and take a look at it and, and look at it for what it really is. So, uh, so, so speaking of Ted, you write this since the start of these interviews with Ted, the world has been rocked by coronavirus, by the coronavirus virus pandemic. 
there has been the proliferation of Black Lives Matter protests, including the nationwide social unrest that came after the videotape murder of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There's mm-hmm. also been a significant uptake in, in hate crimes against Muslims, minority groups of color, Jews and Asians, such as mass shootings in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, on March 16th, 2021, by a lone gunman that left eight Asian women dead. Ted placed at least some of the responsibility on Trump's caustic and inflammatory style rhetoric. Ted hoped Biden would at least lead us through into a better direction. That statement belies an understanding and underscores the truth behind you will always be different, which is as close as I've heard to the walking on broken glass cultural reality of minorities in America. Do you agree with that? I do. Yeah. I think I think in some ways they're walking on more dangerous glass. Yeah. And and white people are just scared to even engage because they because they might get called a racist mm-hmm. to really have a meaningful engagement. And so they oftentimes Unless they're blatantly racist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if they really have their hearts in the right place, they're just so scared of, uh, uh, and so they overcorrect. I don't want to say politically correct because that's a that's a right wing term it came from during the Reagan years, I believe. But they do tend to overly overcorrect, and you can't get to any kind of truth that way either. For example, to not say that the situation of this white kid at Waller High School wasn't a little violent, needlessly, is an oversimplification that people are going to react to this wider systemic racist uh, setup that they've grown up in. Yeah. Many of many of my fellow students from Cabrini Green, their parents came from Mississippi, mm-hmm. if not almost all of them. And we're, uh, you know, with Jim Crow and everything else. To think that they're not going to be angry and once they have a, within a very limited uh, environment of a high school, the upper hand. Yeah, you're not going to yeah. get. You're not going to get some some slaps in the face <laughs> or worse. Uh, is ridiculous. And so, if you're not, if you're overcorrecting, you can't humanize the other side fully. Yeah. You know, and that's just humanizing things that uh, uh, that situation is is important to mm-hmm. see. This is what will happen mm-hmm. when you really don't treat each other right. <laughs> This is what will happen. And and the end game back and forth with it will go on forever. So Hey Liberal is about a white kid maneuvering race relations in a predominantly black black high school. It reads like a memoir told in third person. It's that it's that deep and and intimate. Um, And uh, so the the only the only thing I can think is that the success of the book was affected by was timing, timing, timing with with regards to everything that was going on in the country in our greater dialogue or argument about race coming through yeah. and coming out of uh the obama era and into the trump era there's um, some truth to that yeah yeah just yeah. bad timing yeah and i could be very yeah. clinical and talk about your brand but but here i should say your your writer's voice i think hidden place only seems to get better with age man Really? That is, it, it really, it really does. I think it, it's, it's maybe even more relevant now than when you wrote it. Um, hidden place. Hidden place. Why is that? I got to interview you now. Why is that? <laughs> but, but talking about appropriation is really a significant part of, 
uh, of our cultural dialogue here in this country mm -hmm. now. The, the Mexicans, the indigenous Mexicans, uh, were sort of viewing this character as, as appropriating uh, or on the borderline of appropriating certain aspects of their culture. Certainly, he's certainly invading their turf. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Just wants just wants to enjoy the waves and the ocean and the red snapper. Uh, yes, yeah, and then leave. Yeah, okay, but, okay, gotcha. So, so I found I found that to be very, very relevant for where we are today in society. The, the story is really about a couple that goes there at uh, uh, the hippie era. And their 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 relationship isn't going because very he could well, be so. he could be going to Yugoslavia, he could right, be going right. he could be going to the south of France. Yeah, um, you right. said it in Mexico, right? Um, when I and there I had a fair amount of Mexican friends in Lincoln Park. Mm -hmm. The difference between the Mexicans and the Puerto Rican community is the Mexicans oftentimes owned their house. Yeah, they were yeah. here to stay. There wasn't <laughs> this big wave yet of illegal immigrants that was going to come in a few years. But yeah. They own their house and they're still there in Lincoln Park in places. If you owned your house, no one could move you out. The Puerto Rican community got completely shoved out, unfortunately. Yeah. They were renters. Um, so I spent, I think I picked Mexico uh, just from uh, uh, my, my friends growing up. And mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and also uh, it was more affordable than the, the Riviera. <laughs> okay. You, know, you, you could just get there. Okay. And you get there and they're not so happy about you being there. Yeah, you know, I'm not yeah. staying in the five-star hotels. I'm staying, you know, yeah. where you can sling up a hammock for a dollar a day. And, uh -huh. and you're completely, as a whole, disrespectful of this the very poor, rural, uh, yeah. real Catholic, uh, indigenous population right there. So mm -hmm. it was about being culturally an idiot <laughs> and and even in the act of being an idiot, you're picking things up that are good for you. <laughs> you're you're learning uh, about and he, his tutor was really the pharmacist Alberto, who would say, "Man, what are you, what are you doing?" But now? there's a race there's a race component in in that that character idiocy as well. Walking through a China shop with clown shoes on. That's a good one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That, that that cliche will work very. That's that's perfect. And then he runs into someone who's really racist, uh, and is out to cause this uh, cultural war between mm -hmm. them, and, and and almost succeeds, and mm -hmm. really is responsible for a couple of murders. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so um, I, I did a lot of traveling in Mexico as a young, uh, from like the age of twenty to maybe twenty three, twenty four. I went down there okay. three or four times. My mom would go down there to write, and I'd use her place in Cuernavaca as a as a headquarters for a while to get some good food, and then I'd go off and you know to different trips around. There. I, I saw a lot of the country. Um, so, but I got to this town, which is everyone loves to go to yeah. Puerto Escondido. Uh, it was a big hangout. It was sort of like a mecca for young hippie Americans like myself. <laughs> And I said, well, what? And there was this tension. I mean, people were just nasty to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, but you still loved it because it's just such a tropical paradise. I said, well, what would happen if someone really wanted to go in there and kind of stir the spoon, stir, stir the stew a little bit and really mm -hmm. start? Mm -hmm. This one time I got chilled. Uh, I was walking down the beach and there was uh, this very muscular American. And I said, yeah, man, I just, I just got all my, my backpack ripped off and my clothes were taken off the line. And he goes, yeah, yeah, man. 
you know, we're we're gonna leave in a day and we're just gonna tonight we're just gonna walk down the beach and we're just gonna kick the shit out of the first Mexican we see. We're just gonna beat the fuck out of him. Wow. He was so cool about it and thought that I would agree with that because I was letting off steam about getting robbed. Yeah, yeah. That he thought I was in on this. I just was chilled by it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, this is not what I want. This is not what I went on vacation. Yeah, yeah. So it just got me to thinking, you know, what what ha- what, what if, which is what fiction is, what mm-hmm. if this got completely out of hand? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and one wonders if if that guy wouldn't react the same with with a white person if he had been if he had been ripped off in uh, again in in the French Riviera or mm-hmm. on the beaches of northern uh, Germany or yeah I don't I don't think Adriana. so no. exactly I think that's exactly. a that's a really good point the color comes into play yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. So let, let me ask you here because because dude we could go on all day. Um but I'm here. I'm here, Bill. All day. <laughs> the the importance <laughs> of these voices. Talk about why it's important to hear these voices. I worked on Hey Liberal for years and couldn't yeah. get it right. And finally it was just stiff. It was third person, and I couldn't yeah. get that physical rhythm of voice going. Or I yeah. could only do it sporadically, and then couldn't recreate it. It was that's. I think that's what separates the beginning writers from some of the more um, uh, polished or, or or experienced writers. That you, you, oh, this is what I did. You know, mm-hmm. so stay away from this. So I went into the first person narrator in Hidden Place, which is very lively. I mean, a lot of writers, that's their first breakthrough. I think Joyce Carol Oates said most first books are first person. They're not mm-hmm. all, but oftentimes they are. Mm-hmm. So I could really just pick up on how this cocky, insecure, you know, dual cocky, <laughs> insecure narrator is who thinks he's, you know, really cool uh, kid from uh, uh, Chicago and he gets involved in this stuff. Well, you can do that for five or 10 pages where you're just listening to by tone, the ear of how someone talks, which is what always came naturally to me. Uh, mm-hmm, I wasn't mm-hmm. a big reader as a kid. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I like to play baseball. Uh, I like to be read too. I've said this in several interviews. My sister read me a whole Nancy Drew book once. Uh, wow. It was one of the most wonder. We were both sick and home from grade school. I just remember that as one of the best days of my life. Uh, but I, I was kind of lazy when it came to reading and just didn't, hadn't gotten reading that really connected to me. It was out there. I just didn't get to it. So I went to first person and I, I, I just have a good ear for how people speak and talk. And yeah. I probably would have been a good screenwriter, but I never did that. So after about 10 pages, you start to lose it. You know, it's like, okay, it can make him lively, but what happens next to the freaking story? <laughs> so when I got through that whole thing, and uh, John Schultz was, was my mentor, he invented the story workshop approach, and I would show him chapters. He's he would point out to me, "Oh, here you're trying to be literary, Sean. Oh, how would you just say this?" And so I I said, "Oh, I just went off base from his voice. Pick up on his voice. How would he say it?" Mm-hmm. Or I would talk to somebody and I'd tell him about the scene, and and then he goes like this. He says this, and I realized but that's not how I wrote it. How I'm talking to somebody. The, the, the fact that Bill is in the room with me mm-hmm. is drawing out my more natural voice of the character. So I'd have to go back, which was usually a, a stiffer phrase or paragraph. So I was always, how would he just say this? How would he say this? And then it's not, 
that's not quite correct either. How would he say this if he had time to really always polish it? That's a different sustaining physical speech. Once I did that, I could go back to, hey, liberal. And third person is really someone just talking to the reader. He's just mm-hmm. not saying, dear reader, the way they used to do it uh, back in Victorian times. Yeah. But I am still talking to the reader. And I was able to pick up on that more mm-hmm. uh, after writing a whole first person novel. It's the dialogue that makes Hey Liberal sing. You know, it's the different voices in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But the third person narrator, it got to the point where I felt it was professional performance on my part. But it doesn't, it never came as naturally and still doesn't as first person in the voice of just someone talking. I'd like to move that same question, the importance of, of these voices for, for Ted, James, and Tina. By extension, I, you know, I, I'll also say that this applies directly to, to the proliferation of the memoir. There's two things going on. One, fantasy yeah. writing is just take going through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> so you have that where uh, nothing is uh, reality based necessarily. Okay, uh, um, and but the first person, the first thing people ask when they read realism was, did that really happen? They they want to know what yeah. happened and what didn't. Sometimes I tell them, and sometimes I play coy. You know, okay. because it is fiction. Okay. It is fiction, but it's become super. Um, imperative that they want to hear real facts real story mm-hmm. like this is based on a real thing you know and so the culture is kind of going in two different ways one is i think younger generations are really into fantasy and game of thrones and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff mm-hmm. and then our generation it has a lot to do with what's real and then and then i think some of that has to do with where literary fiction has gone i mean there's so much emphasis on the language and the poetry of the prose. And we've lost something that a story is just a story. And you uh, and tell it straightforward is just as literary as someone who is a stylist, mm-hmm. like someone who's, someone who's good in the area of dialogue and uh, place uh, setting. That's not any less difficult or than someone who can really turn a phrase all yeah. the time, yeah. right? So then you get some writers who can do it all, right? They're just incredible writers so i think it's some of it is turning away from fiction because fiction has turned its back on us turned turned their back on on what's important and what's happening uh in 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 today's culture and it's um it's getting what it deserves in some ways you know that sounds sounds really mean no (laughs) no uh do do you feel that our voices have become so small with the internet and with the uh, that that there's a necessity for these vehicles that expand our voice or that exalt our voice or that that build our voice out into the community, whether it's social media or TikTok, you know, the the, the TikTok influencers and and or simply telling your story, either via podcast or uh, the written word, uh, a memoir or whatever. Is is that a thing? (laughs) I think some of it is just noise. 
the yeah, internet. Yeah, yeah. Right. And yeah. we've always had forms of noise. Yeah. You know, if we want it, we, we read noise when we're in the checkout line at the jewel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, what yeah. what is Prince Harry doing? What's he saying today? Every so every technology can... has has its shakeout component. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With yeah. with the with, with uh, the Gutenberg Press, it was it was the rise of of the uh, of the witch trials and the the anti witch mm-hmm. pogroms that led to the deaths of thousands of people. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, we wouldn't we wouldn't want to get rid of the rid of the printing press or the written word because mm-hmm. because of that situation that was that was one of those horrific but that was one of those shakeout moments yeah i don't think the uh internet has changed too much what we are as fundamentally as human beings but it's just making it much more intense yeah all the yeah, time and that yeah, and, yeah. and that intensity is probably will will either keep up with it or yeah. we're going to be in a little bit of trouble. I'm seeing a lot of my students. It's interesting teaching college because every two years, it's like you're dealing with a whole different country. It's like you think it's just the baby boomers and the Generation X. It's really about every two years, there's something really different coming at you. And what's coming at me now uh, on teachers is just a lot of high anxiety. Okay. Uh, a lot of mental instability. Is that from phones? Uh, is that from internet? Phones on the internet? Yeah. If I walk down a hallway in Columbia when I was uh, undergrad, this is back in started '72. In fact, I took mm-hmm. my first college class when I was in high school. It was everyone's talking and relating, and you know, you hear noise and there's music. You yeah. walk down the hallway now, Columbia, everyone's on their phone. On their phone, yeah. Everyone's on their, just not, it's dead silent. Yeah. Maybe someone's talking a little bit, but they're also on their phone. I'm not sure how that's going to shake out, but I think that as we are fundamentally the same and we'll, we'll, we'll have this greater distraction perhaps, but we'll get through that. I don't really worry too much. It's it's going to, first of all, it's going to happen whether we worry about it or not. Yeah, so we'll indeed. see where it goes from there. All you right. know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a Luddite. You know, I always pick up on things 10 years after everyone else knows it. So... <laughs> so. TikTok, yes. I'm starting to watch TikTok a little too much. I know it's stupid, but you know, the, I, I'm easily distracted. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, you have to just keep, keep, keep finding time for your work and, and cut down on your distractions. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Sean Shiflett is currently working on a multicultural project, oral histories on race in America. The first uh, I, three part. Could, yeah, go please, please. Sorry. Could I say something else about um, what was that called uh, when you take on someone else's voice from a culture? What's the word? Appropriation. Appropriation. Yeah, I have some very strong feelings about that. I think that it's gotten to the point. I think that's a uh, something that's come more from academics yeah. than it does from artists. Because if I can't try to get into the mind of someone who's not me, well, then that's a pretty boring book to just be writing about me all the time. Yeah, yeah. And we have so much. It's true. I'll never know what it's like to live uh, to live in a society where my family has the legacy of slavery. I, mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. I, but I can come a long way to understanding how someone feels uh, enough to really try to take someone's point of view Indeed. and to take a character. So I take it even further do i never take on a woman's point of view or do i only mm-hmm. write about uh you know uh 
senior citizen white men. Yeah. I think this is it, it's insane and absurd and and yeah, there's so many examples of bad appropriation mm-hmm. that yeah, we should be cognizant of that. But the only question should be, did it work? Did did that make the story move? There is one part. It's probably the biggest risk I take, or one of the risks. Um, mm-hmm in Hey Liberal, where I take on for half a chapter or a chapter, a black character's point of view. It's just thrown in. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes it structurally, you know, risky, right? I'm Mm -hmm. in this third book Mm -hmm. and I go, this chapter is going to be told by Clyde Porter, who's Mm -hmm. a a black friend of Simon. Can't have friends and they're both into baseball. Right. And I, the reason I did it wasn't to try to say, look at me, (laughs) I'm appropriating this. I couldn't get the scene to work. I tried it third person, first person, from Simon's point of view, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Lewis's point of view, from the girlfriend's point of view, Dia. And finally, when I went to Clyde's point of view and what he's what he feels like it's being immersed in the white world, yeah, these are all yeah. white students, I knew him pretty well. I knew what his reaction as a human being was. Yeah. It was a revelation to me. Did I get some things wrong? Maybe. I don't know. You know, but he was able to tell the scene. Do I obey the appropriation rule or do I obey the story? You know, I I think it comes down to I think it comes down to sensitivity and and respect. And so if if you're bringing that to the mix, Pablo Picasso literally brought African culture and art to uh, to European sensitivities in the early part of the 20th, 20th century. Which he appropriated it. He he, yeah. appro- he he appropriated it, but he did so respectfully, and and he did so with with the sensitivity. It wasn't this is mine. He was he was very upfront about his inspiration at looking at at African art, at ancient mm-hmm. and and uh, even even near term a- African art. Mm-hmm. So was he culturally? appropriate uh as opposed to appropriation but uh, was he was he uh, uh, or or culturally astute in in his rendering and assessment of african art probably mm-hmm. not but i'd say it was a leap forward um, sure that's for... a really good example in art yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. casa's face yeah okay, i tell you another example in writing i heard a lot of people just give it lip service and then they appropriate anyways mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. you're so limited if you don't at some point. But there's a, a writer, a very talented writer, uh, Palestinian, and was talking about how she doesn't think anything should be appropriated. But she also is in this high school. And uh, one of the characters is, a, is is going to be a shooter, a kid, a white kid. And yeah, every, yeah. the excerpt I heard her read out loud uh, is when she went into the point of view of the white shooter the whole writing took on another level. It was she was enjoying going into an opposite's point of view and mm-hmm. and really plugging into his humanness. This is how he would think, and this is why he would think. It was it was marvelous. Uh, it, so sometimes we do this exercise called opposites. Yeah, and so that we can develop characters and and we mm-hmm. we know them fairly well because they're opposite from us, which means we must know what they don't do as much as what they do do. Um, it's just part of the art of um... it creates it creates this this nuanced um, view of view of of our shared experience 
um, yes. as opposed to looking at everything through this this hard um, light and dark lens. Yeah. And so so we're able we're able to hopefully find better insights mm -hmm. into into our respective human quirks yeah. uh, and, and foibles and failings and then bring bring light to that and bring light to that uh our our own our own contribution to that experience yeah. that's well said bill yeah. it's also um you i need a nap you... now <laughs> you also i'm not sure if i answered this because we've been talking and going from here to there but i do do the oral histories and i learn i'm still working out what happened to me at Waller High School. That's an ongoing yeah, yeah, uh, thing. Yeah. So by doing uh, James, uh -huh. seeing what he went through, I can better understand. I think I understand it, but the, the levels of understanding yeah, yeah. of what an experience is like uh, was uh, was for me there. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's healing to me to hear mm -hmm. James' story, and it's mm -hmm. healing to me to hear Ted talk about this thing that as his friend in grade school, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. his family had gone through and that and that yes lane was safe for me but it was dangerous for him yeah and what you really yeah. get is how we just got to do a really better job yeah yeah of uh being a cohesive uh uh kind and uh kind. and then life and history life and history are processes they mm -hmm. they they come they come from someplace and they're moving to someplace mm -hmm. and Life, life, and history are not episodic, where where there's there's a beginning and 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 a, and a middle and an end, and then and then that's it. And without context, uh, everything in life and history have have context and are part of of this broader, greater process. You are on, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we all want to be moving somewhere, moving forward, moving yeah. in our thinking and deepening our understanding and our empathy. And oh, it's it's just so rich in story. It's it's uh, you know sometimes I would wake up. Uh, I heard it said that Studs Terkel he kind of had a detachment when he did oral histories. I, I think maybe that was just because he was doing so yeah, many I'm, of them. I'm but, guessing that's completely different for you. Yeah, I'm totally there under my skin i wake up yeah. and think what would mama lizzie do here oh i can't believe she had to do this and um but and you don't want to start... miss any you don't want to miss any details you don't want to miss any any nuance or any anything that is is out of your your natural environment or, or your realm of experience mm -hmm. right right yeah yeah well, ted is... i i think how could i you know i was born on december 7th right it's in the essay yeah, Pearl Harbor Day, and I, Ted would come to my birthday parties, you wow. know, and he was wow. he was probably just going, oh, don't anyone say, you know, I don't know what I probably as a kid would walk up, hey, Pearl Harbor Day, what do you think about that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, but he and he still remembered it when he was when there was racial tension at uh, Champagne or wow. you know at the university. He said, yeah, I'm walking down the street, and suddenly all these people start going. Here's the chap, throws them, pelting him with snowballs, and he goes, "It was your birthday, Sean. It was your birthday." So he's like in college, and he's remembering my birthday. You know. So very quickly, I I, I just thought of something that uh, Tina Tina Jenkins reminded me of, and and uh, going to the police station, and and her investment in her kid that 
I was on the air during the Ferguson riots. Mm-hmm. And that's where Black Lives Matter. That's that was the beginning of the modern protest. Indeed. Yeah. And so regardless of, of what you think about the the catalyst for um, or the initial catalyst for for the Ferguson riots, mm-hmm. one of one one serious aspect was a coalition of parents went to the police station to because they were invested in the community and they wanted answers and they were met with barbed wire and mm-hmm. militarism and machine guns i remember that yeah. and the riots progressed rapidly from there exponentially mm-hmm. from there mm-hmm. and and i was i was saying at the time that if if the police had simply engaged with those parents, had allowed them to become part of the process, or mm-hmm. at least witness the process, and mm-hmm. and have their voice heard, you would have never had you would have never had Ferguson. Just just a just a a, a, a quick aside that uh, that I, I was I was really struck by that when I was reading reading the piece. Um, that's almost a, that's a symptomatic yeah, yeah. of how he got shot in the first place. So yeah. th- there's, there's something much deeper going on there than just not listening to a bunch of parents. That, that That's just the a process. That, that's just, yeah, yeah. 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 And so there's just a, another example of how deep seated the, the dysfunction mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. systemic racism was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are no shortage of voices in this city, just in this city alone, with an experience and perspective on race, maybe even scars, physical and mental even. Mm-hmm. Where do you go next with with this series? I'm doing one now with David Rivera, who was, uh, he was a young lord. He was a sort of second in command to Chacha uh, mm-hmm. Jimenez. Um, and uh, I've already got it down. I've already uh, just need time oh brilliant to take through and uh the first thing you get the transcript and i do my own transcript i slow it way down and i learn a lot like the narrators talking and i'm (laughs) so that i can type it and you Mm -hmm. you pick up on uh, a lot of nuance yeah yeah when it's that slowed down um, that's my excuse anyways. I also just don't want to pay someone to do all the transcribing. <laughs> so, uh, after I go through that, there's a lot of, there's a lot of editing and, and trust. I have to you develop with the narrator where yeah. they'll say the same phrase every time. Yeah. Do, you, do you need this? So it's, it's built. And then there's just things that make sense when someone's speaking to you, but when they're actually written down, they drop mm-hmm. the noun, they drop the verb, they disconnected this from that or yeah. forgot yeah. that the pronoun doesn't uh, correspond to the antecedent. So there's a lot of things that David and I will go through always with respect to his voice, mm-hmm. you know, always mm-hmm. with respect to making him more David than even David made himself, because <laughs> that, that was just raw data that you had. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, you, then you start to see where things are popping out. If I have to move things around a little bit, so I there are other oral historians who say you cannot change anything, uh, but I think that's crazy. So I'm trying to, as long as I'm honest to his voice, mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find the arc of the story, and at the same time respect 
David mm-hmm. and, and make sure that he feels that respect, then I'm okay. So that's that, that'll be a long process. But he talks about coming from Puerto Rico and dirt poor and what they used to, the, yeah. the, I can't even remember the name of the stoves they all had. And then they sold everything to come to wow. Chicago. Wow. And he said, in Chicago, it's Lincoln Park. So we're sharing. Uh-huh. He's a little bit older than me. So we're sharing the same hot dog stands and, uh-huh. and the things that we miss about old Lincoln Park before it became so gentrified. And he said, we were, this is what surprised me. As kids, we were poor, but we were just really happy and how he mm-hmm. would play in the alleys and cops and robbers. And, and, it, and it wasn't until later he became political and mm-hmm. uh, when, when the Puerto Rican community was under threat and was yeah. being moved out. And they were getting shot. Had several uh, young lords who were shot by cops and yeah. uh, never found uh, or uh, minister at the uh, uh, at the church on uh, Armitage Avenue uh, Church Methodist mm-hmm. Church. He was mm-hmm. he was murdered, and no one has ever found his murder. So these things, wow. yeah, George Floyd and onward, but really there were earlier <laughs> incidents that reflect back to this time in Lincoln Park, which was a hotbed mm-hmm. of of race and political activity that was wiped out yeah. well wiped out you know so so that's where i'm going with that and then after that I, I we'll see nice and just to just to follow on to what you you said a moment ago one thing i've learned in broadcasting is you have to respect your your guest or your subject you also have to respect your audience and your audience doesn't have the same intimate inside view correct of you know and, and you have to you have to uh, respect your format as well and the the format says a lot about about how how you render a piece so you're saying i think bill that i can't just be having this inside conversation with david i have to always be aware of the wider audience that they can follow it i think so they have they have that context yeah sure and and That's, they understand they understand the topic and the subject at at least as well as you do. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you're going to have you're going to have a greater knowledge. You you sat face to face with this person. You breathe the same air. Uh. And and, mm-hmm. and there's you know there's a there's a connection there. But building that connection is is sort of between you guys. You need to take what you can of that. And build it out to an audience. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is that audience is is layered. You know, yeah, it's not just yeah. it's not just between on one level it's between you and your yeah, narrator. Yeah. On another level, it's between you and the wider audience. And I also will I will add some just individual people who I know are interested. Uh-huh. And and they'll go into my they'll come into my audience and then the next scene they're not, I don't think yeah. they'll be that interested. Yeah. I'll bring my wife into the audience. <laughs> it's this mental it's this mental sense of audience mm-hmm. which really separates beginning writers yeah. from more experienced writers, and that that's the organizing tool. Right, you're layering right. Of audience that organizes the piece finally. I, I do a lot of editing in in my piece, and and sometimes people sometimes people will say things that are completely innocent to an unknown audience will come off as hostile or harsh or negative or what have you. And and so I have to I have to make a judgment on whether or not I want that to characterize the entire piece or or the person or to weight mm-hmm. that that entire piece Be, because 
when when we when we create something, you create something, there's space in the air between you and me, whether it's on the page or mm-hmm. or somebody is listening to us speak. And that and that's why that's why clarity is paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're uh, I think as as creative people or chroniclers uh, or journalists, we're trying to minimize the 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 disparate air between between us and and someone who will hear or read us, right? Right. I think I think we're not. Are you talking more about oral history type stuff? Uh, indeed, indeed. But or memoir, memoir stuff. I think when we're when we're if a, I'm I'm not trying to have a gotcha moment with right. the narrators. Right. Right. I mean, it's not. It's different than a reporter. Who's, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like the gotcha moment is cool, right? Uh, I will several times have had to say, are you sure you want to say that? Because some people might think this. So just weigh it before. And and usually they go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't really mean that. I see what you're saying. So I, because that that moment might be the thing that sticks with the reader the most, just like what you said. And Precisely. they great great story, great narration going, and they're going to and think then, oh, one yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. And so well, I remember it was uh, one narrator who decided after I put all the work into it, she didn't want me to use her name or get published, mm-hmm. so I had to put it aside. She said, I am the most least racist person you know. And I said, don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, because yeah. that's yeah. what we all say. And it just, you know, that's what Trump says. That's what I said. You 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 definitely have your strong sensibilities and she she got it right away or ted yeah. ted what was oh, something you know these uh japanese americans they got uh they got some restitution it wasn't much mm-hmm. you know but they got some i said you know well be aware the black community has not gotten a dime so yeah. he said he said that's true but this is how we felt about it and so mm-hmm. uh, i just i just warned him there might be some some backlash but he he said no but that's 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 the way it is we we felt okay. it wasn't enough and yeah. so that was fair enough you know i just I'm, I'm not to take it out so much as just to yeah. alert them to the fact that that's that might be a red flag with some people and any good piece is going to have some red flags but do you do you really want this one uh sean shiflett is currently working on a multicultural project oral histories on race in America, the first three parts of that series are currently running in New City Magazine here in Chicago. Uh, his website is seanchifflett.com. We'll post a link to the articles and to Sean's website in the notes below. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. And thank you for reading all my writing. And, you know, it's it's been a pleasure and an honor, you know, really to have you interview me. This has been a lot of fun. I, I have and I, I meant to have it on my desk here. It's on the table behind me, but I have a liberal already uh, pull, pulled out and I was going to wave it in the air and and show you that I still have it. And uh, but I, I still got you. it. I believe. You. No, but but you're you're a terrific writer. I'm a huge fan. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you again, man. One of the nice things about being on the Chicago Writers Association uh, board is I got to meet people like yourself and mm-hmm. uh, and Randy uh, and all the people who are writers and yeah. last night the the Book of the Year awards. It's just it's a it's a wonderful way to stay in touch with uh, our family of literary folks. It's a great and a little bit intimidating community. 
but uh, if if you're that's if you're, good. It's it's great. Yeah, the, I, I don't mean that in any, in any negative way. Uh, it, it's it's great, but there is some exceptional exceptional talent associated with the Chicago Writers Association. I agree. I agree. So.